Hello and welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC-focused podcast from The Athletic. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest blues, news, reviews, previews and views. On today's show, we're conducting the post-mortem on Chelsea's galling defeat on Tyneside, looking ahead to the big midweek match against Arsenal, revelling in the women's team's dismantling of the Gunners, examining the Blues' burgeoning relationship with Swansea City, answering your questions and meeting our latest cult hero. It's a controversial one. All that and more to come on this episode of Straight Out of Cobham. Yes, welcome listener. It's me, Matt Davis-Adams, back with my athletic associates to talk you through another week in the life of Chelsea Football Club. Don Fifield's been out in the Netherlands meeting Alan Pardew, as you do, so he's not here this week. But making a welcome return from the physio's room is Simon Johnson. Have you thawed out from Saturday's trip to Tyneside yet? Yes, Newcastle's worked wonders, but um, it's good to be back after my unofficial winter break. (laughs) I had to touch you on the way in to make sure you were real. Yes. That that sounds bad. (laughs) I'm not just a myth. Uh, with Simon, the only member of the panel with a 100% attendance record so far in this series. Think of him as our Cesar Azpilicueta, it's <laughs> Liam Toomey. No, Frank Lampard. Okay, yeah, either or. Was it 162? Yeah. That, th- that beats 74 Premier League games, so. yeah, I'm, I'm, sorry Cesar. I'm getting caught up in, uh, in old Azpilicueta, aren't I? Uh, good to have you both on board anyway. We can't put this off any longer. Let's dissect what went wrong at Newcastle. A tweet here from S. Johnson Sport. In the time it's taken me to travel home by train, brackets four in total, close brackets, from Newcastle today, I could have flown to Dubai. Ridiculous. At least I saw a good game. Not impressed face emoji. Uh, So despite having 19 attempts on goal, 70% possession, 10 corners to Newcastle's one, Chelsea were sunk by Isaac Hayden's 94th minute winner at St. James's Park. Easily the best goal you'll see this season scored by a player using their nose. Uh, As we've heard, Simon, you were there for the Athletic. Fair to say it was a sort of familiar tale this season, one of those games where you think if if a certain E. Hazard had been playing, it might have finished differently. Yeah, I mean, it felt like one of the the home games that we've seen recently where against Simile, um, well-organised, rather dull opposition, Chelsea struggled to break them down. I mean, those, those statistics that you uh, referred to are quite misleading because if you actually think back to the amount of clear-cut opportunities Chelsea had, there were few and far between. And, and it was it was very frustrating to watch, really. Um, Newcastle, don't blame them for their tactics uh, one bit because it works. You, you sit back, let Chelsea do all the running, and there's just so many factors, I think, into why Chelsea's struggling at the moment. And I think the lack of creativity in midfield, the lack of that X-factor player, is increasingly hurting this Chelsea side. Mm. Uh, Liam, we've got a question here from Callum who asks, what are the other, uh, inverted commas, big teams doing to beat pack defences that we're missing? Is it just poor finishing, poor movement, poor passing, etc.? I think they have more individual quality, a lot of the other big teams. Um, particularly in wide areas, but I think they also have more goal threat from midfield, which is again an issue with the personnel that Chelsea have assembled in terms of central midfielders. And they're not depending on players typically aged 22 or younger to be their primary scoring threats. This is a consistent issue. You know, they're, they're, there's not a ton new to talk about, I don't think, with in terms of this Newcastle defeat because they basically just turned this into a Stamford Bridge home game. <laughs> they set up exactly the same way, um, defended deep, defended narrow, gave Chelsea the wide areas. And I think the turning point for Chelsea, who were already kind of struggling, but but were at least showing signs of being able to break through, was when Rhys James went off. 
And uh, I think I saw a stat that Chelsea didn't complete a cross after James went off injured. And I think it's already become pretty clear that he is absolutely vital if they want to break down this this kind of defensive strategy because teams can take away your wingers, but they can't necessarily take away attacking fullbacks as well. And someone like James who can deliver the ball with quality and pick someone out rather than just hoofing the ball into an area that's crowded by Newcastle players um, makes a big difference. And as soon as that was taken away from Chelsea, I think we saw all the all the same old problems, lots of sideways passing. Any any attempted forward passes were just getting cut out. Tammy Abraham was largely being swamped. And at the other end, Chelsea looked vulnerable to high balls and set pieces. And in the end, that, that kind of cemented the mugging, as it were, in the in the last minute. Simon, danger of maybe blowing this out of proportion a bit? I mean, other than Wolves, nobody else won chasing Chelsea. They've still got a five-point gap. This kind of thing is going to happen this season, but still pretty well-placed ahead of this run of tough fixtures. Yes, but you sort of you sort of think, well, how long can they get away with it for? Um, it, it is remarkable, the sort of sheer ineptitude of all the teams in that sort of race for the fourth spot, which to me feels like the weakest battle for fourth spot in living memory. Certainly the weakest since last season. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's, it, even last season's looking quite a high high watermark um, compared to this one because all the teams are sort of taking it in turns to have a bad result. Um, I mean, it's remarkable. I even tweeted about it um, after United's loss at Liverpool. Perhaps not a surprise, but the fact that Chelsea had got away with it again with, this, um, with another bad result, another bad performance um, but still ending the weekend in a in a good position but they've got some tough games coming up and you just sort of think that um, they, this can't continue they, they are going to have to go on that what seems like a lifetime ago now that sort of seven game winning streak which was the peak of the season um, if they are going to secure a fourth spot. Well, Chelsea don't have long to dwell on that defeat. They're back in action against Arsenal on Tuesday. We'll look ahead to that game. So it's Arsenal at the bridge on Tuesday night as Chelsea look to get back to winning ways against the first team they came from behind to beat this season, that last month at the Emirates, of course. Um, Liam, seems like the early prognosis on Rhys James is, is that he would be OK for this game. It's not that serious an injury. Do you think there will be any changes to the lineup? therefore? It's tricky to say. I think if, if if James is good to go, I'd be tempted to put him in because I think you saw the impact that Tarek Lamptey had at the Emirates Stadium. You know, a fullback willing to bomb on really helped change that game in Chelsea's favour and, and Reese James is kind of a souped-up version of, of Tarek Lamptey at this point. It's worth mentioning, I think, that Chelsea will face a slightly different Arsenal than even a few weeks ago. I think they, they maybe know a little bit more what they want to do under Mikel Arteta and uh, and I expect this game generally to be a slightly higher quality affair than the pretty dire showing from both teams that that we saw in North London. I don't expect too many changes to the Chelsea team, particularly in attack, because I don't think Lampard has a ton of options. He doesn't trust Michy Bachoye now because he's offered nothing since scoring in Amsterdam. Um, Olivier Giroud's on his way out. You only have really Callum Hudson-Odoi and Willian if you're not going to play Pedro, who we again think is is kind of approaching the end game of his Chelsea career, either in this window or the next. And none of the midfielders really changed the dynamic too much in terms of a goal threat. So I'm not sure Lampard has too many options, which is why I think in the immediate aftermath of that Newcastle game, you saw him 
increasingly agitated, making the point that he he probably needs a new attacker in this window and, and sooner rather than later. Um, Simon, this reverse fixture w- was the game when Frank changed it tactically in the first half because it had gone so badly wrong and, and brought Emerson off and Jorginho on and Tamori ended up playing at full-back. What, what do you think his tactical approach to, to this game is going to be? Good question because it's a totally different kettle of fish being at Stamford Bridge at home. I mean, the good thing is is he doesn't have a Bamiang to, to worry about. Of course, he, he's suspended. No, I mean, I think... The problem is midfield for me. Does he does he revert back to Ross Barkley, who played uh, well, I thought, against Burnley? There's a real worry about the midfield that was selected against Newcastle for me in terms of creativity. You're looking at Jorginho to provide it. He's just not doing it at the moment. I, I wrote a piece a few weeks ago after the Brighton um, performance. And whilst he's undoubtedly a, a key leader in that dressing room, and and I've been impressed with the way he's come on in that regard, and and that's why Frank gave him the vice captaincy. His creativity is a massive letdown, and and we saw it again at Newcastle, pass after pass, being constantly intercepted, quite comfortably by Newcastle. And when Barkley came on, he's not by no means the the solution to Chelsea's problems, but there just seemed to be a bit of an injection of of quality. And of course, Kante who I also write a little bit of a critical piece about after Newcastle. I'm not suggesting for a moment that he should be dropped against Arsenal, but I'm not sure you can have that same pairing of Kante and Jorginho because I just don't know where Chelsea are going to create a chance from. So that, if I was Lampard, I would be seriously thinking about Barkley. Well, the one thing Barkley can do that Jorginho can't is that if the options aren't there, if the angles aren't there for those passes forward... The other option is bringing the ball forward yourself and trying to make things happen, and Barkley can at least do that. But so can Mateo Kovacic, which has made it slightly surprising that he's maybe fallen out of the team in the last few weeks. I think if if this continues to be an issue for Chelsea in the next couple of games, I think we, we probably will see a return of Kovacic because he was doing that job, I think, better than anyone else at the club until pretty recently. Well, if you're listening to this show on your way to Stamford Bridge for the game, hope you enjoy it. 8.15 UK time is the kickoff for that. Uh, speaking of Chelsea and Arsenal, they met in the WSL this past weekend and it was a statement victory for Emma Hayes' side as they ran out 4-1 winners at the home of the champions. Sam Kerr got her first Blues goal. Beth England scored a beauty which was bettered only by Sophie Ingle's strike. Guro Wrighton completed the scoring. It means Chelsea only a point behind Man City and Arsenal, the top two, and they have a game in hand. Um, Liam, this was a Really incredible performance. They were 3-0 up midway through the first half. It did seem to be a flexing of the muscles, didn't it? Um, I didn't watch the game live, but the quality of the goals really speaks to how dangerous Chelsea are this season and and the, the squad that Emma Hayes has managed to build. And Sam Kerr has, has clearly added some, some star power to that attack and what a time to get her first Chelsea goal in such a big game speaks to to her character as well as her quality and that Sophie Ingle strike I I can't I don't get tired of watching it it looks I compared it to like a sort of perfect golf swing she doesn't even move her leg that that fast or try to hit the ball that hard she just catches it so cleanly that it floats into the top corner and it was um yeah a, a strike that that any any player would be proud of certainly in a big game like that and when you're talking about the WSL season which is quite short Chelsea paid last season for for losing games early on or even drawing games. Draws are almost like defeats given the standard of that title race. Chelsea need to 
own these head-to-heads really if they're going to win back the WSL and it's looking quite good at the moment. Mm. Um, Simon, on Sam Kerr, her arrival seems like one of those signings that lifts a whole squad because her attitude seems quite good but bringing a genuine world superstar into a squad's got to have a positive effect on, on everybody. At a club like Chelsea, where generally, you know, it's a very harmonious squad, the manager is respected by all the players. It's not like you're bringing in somebody who people will say, oh, well, how come she's getting so much more money than me? Other players will look and go, great, we've got the best player in the world. Yeah, well, I, I think Frank Lampard might be quite jealous of Emma Hayes. You know, the fact that she's obviously been able to cre- recruit so brilliantly. And I noticed, obviously, I was... I was on my uh, lovely um, journey back from Newcastle, but I, I, it just just felt for me, just from watching the highlights, that there was a real buzz around the ground as well from, from her presence. Um, and what a perfect way to start, superb header at the back post. And in fact, all the goals were kind of, um, showed a lot of quality about them, almost like Chelsea having a bit of a goal of the season competition on their own a little bit. I mean, I, I thought the, the first strike... Um, was a remarkable bit of skill and kind of then only only to get uh, overshadowed. Um, but it's noticeable how Didier Drogba um, expressed his admiration for it. And when when you're getting Drogba sort of so seal of approval, then you know you're doing something he right. He knows a thing or two about a, a spectacular goal against Arsenal Ex- exactly, in particular. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think Arsenal had only conceded is it five goals before that. Um, so in one game, they've the, the goals against Colin, which who knows, goal difference might come down to it given the... There's only one point between three sides at the moment. Um, it might come down to goal difference and that result will, will certainly help Chelsea's goal difference. Mm, yeah, elsewhere, uh, Chelsea will play Manchester United in the semi-final of the WSL Cup. That's the the League Cup. Uh, that will be played at the end of this month. And now then, Liam, last week you and Stuart James penned a joint read on Chelsea's burgeoning relationship with Swansea City. I think we were all quite surprised when Conor Gallagher was recalled from what had been a, a very successful loan at Charlton and sent to South Wales. But there's a reason why he and Mark Gurhey have made that particular move and it's down in large part to the Swansea manager. Yeah, the, the reason in short is Steve Cooper. Um, there are senior members of Chelsea's academy, most notably you know, Jim Fraser, Neil Barth, um, Joe Edwards also has a really good relationship with, with Cooper from his time in charge of England under-17s. Gurhey and Gallagher were both part of that England under-17 squad that won the World Cup with Cooper in India in 2017. So there are lots and lots of connections there. And that was the most interesting element to me of all of this because I, I first got wind that Chelsea might be hoping to to strike up a broader relationship with Swansea when Gurhey made the move. Um, and and we got we got a tip off that Gallagher might might follow, so we were on that story all week, myself and Stuart. And um, it's it's an interesting one going forward because clearly there there might be limitations to it. You know, if Swansea get promoted, you can only get one lone player from another Premier League club, so um, there there are limitations to how many Chelsea players will be playing for Swansea under Cooper. But I think in a broader sense, they trust Cooper to develop these players in the right way as people as well as footballers but also to put them in position to succeed on the pitch and I think you saw um, Gallagher got an assist on his Swansea debut for Ryan Brewster who's another member of that under 17 World Cup winning and squad Chelsea, who, of course. And, and ex-Chelsea of course who's now joined Cooper on loan um, so he's using his connections really well and uh, you know as, as long as he's in charge I think it's fairly safe to say that Swansea will be in a pretty strong position to get very good um, Chelsea Academy players on loan for in the coming years. What do you think Connor made of it? Because presumably 
you know, he wouldn't have had to move house to go and play at Charlton. He, was he didn't. Quite no, he was living there. with family. Yeah. Um, and now he is going to another country and having to, you know, readjust to new teammates. So obviously, Frank Lampard had a loan spell at Swansea. Didn't do him any harm, but it's a bit of an upheaval for him, surely. It is a bit of a change, particularly mid-season. Maybe not ideal. You'd you'd want to to make this kind of move in the summer if you could, but. One way or another, one time or another, it's a step he needs to take if he wants to become the Premier League player that people around him and people at Chelsea believe he can be. Um, so I think he's progressed faster at Charlton than maybe even he expected. I don't think anyone expected him to get five goals in his first 12 games. It tailed off a little bit with Charlton going through a really rough patch. But um, I think there's there's a keen desire to maintain that trajectory and that momentum towards becoming a Premier League player maybe as soon as next season at Chelsea or elsewhere. And I think he, while this is a bit of an upheaval and an adjustment, he puts himself in a good position if he does well to really impress Lampard in pre-season next summer. And then Chelsea will have an interesting decision to make on him. Mm. Simon, how do you think the Premier League and the FL feel about this kind of arrangement of a, of a Premier League club having a, a preferred destination for their players, is that something that the AFL in particular wouldn't be too keen on, or maybe they would like? Um, well, I'll be honest, I sort of haven't had those discussions, but I wouldn't say it, it, we're not talking like a Vitesse Arnhem situation here. Um, there's like, there's sort of a certain limitations of what Chelsea and Swansea will do. I think it's a positive, it's a win win situation. I, don't, I can't see the AFL being. An, Unless it's abused, I can't see them being too upset about it if their product is being improved by the presence of quality young players in a certain team. And I, I think Conor Gallagher, um, as he's already shown at Charlton, is definitely a rising star. I got the impression earlier this season that he's already being viewed as someone that could come into the squad uh, for next season. Um, obviously, it will, a lot will depend on what Chelsea do in the transfer window. Um, but I just like the way that he's celebrated... Um, the assist. I mean, obviously, obviously, you know, you're going to be delighted that your team scored, but it just seemed like that there was more than just a celebration of of setting up a goal. It was like, right, I've started straight away where I wanted to, where where I want to do. Because obviously, he's got to prove himself all over again. Um, what I find quite interesting is, of course, it wasn't that long ago that uh, Josh McEachran. It was almost like that was the venue for his um, start of a massive decline. The fact that he failed at Swansea under Brendan Rodgers. Um, but now, you just get the feeling that loans are all about trust, aren't they? And and Chelsea want to make sure that the players they're going are going to be well looked after. And of course, this relationship which Liam and Stuart have discuss discussed means that they're going to be quite happy to send their best youngsters there for the foreseeable future. Well, people I've spoken to at Chelsea insist this isn't a formal relationship between the clubs. It's very much a Cooper-centric um, relationship with key people in Chelsea's academy and it's you know you can compare it to last season why did Frank Lampard and Jody Morris get entrusted with Mason Mount for Kaitamori this is a sport of relationships it's a business but relationships make a huge difference and I think um, as Simon says loans are about trust and if Chelsea have a club or a coach that they feel can get the best out of these young players they're, they're naturally going to favour them and, and actually from an EFL perspective they might see it as a, a more palatable version of putting B teams into the football league you know clubs might not necessarily need to do that if they think we can get 
three players out to the same club and essentially track their development all in one. It, it saves having that unpleasant argument about League Three, which didn't go down very well. Yeah, and also you got to remember that the EFL clubs at the moment, not just in the Championship, of course, throughout the Football League, financially are increasing under pressure. Um, they all want to get promoted but don't have the money to do it unless... Um, I don't know whether we want to stray off topic. They sell their grounds and then to themselves and then lease it back. And anyway, that's something for other clubs to answer. Um, but yeah, loans is cl- is clearly going to be a helpful thing for football league clubs uh, from from Premier League sides because they're going to struggle to recruit in the transfer market with big fees for for players. So why not just tap one of the best academies, if not the best academy in the country, for, for talent? Uh, so finally on this then, Liam, any other members of the Chelsea Academy setup going out on loan this month? Tarek Lamptey, Billy Gilmore, Tarek Awakwe, I've, I've heard, has been linked with a, a couple of clubs. Um, I, I know there's there are noises over several of them. I've not heard anything specific on Gilmore or Lamptey yet. I think the priority with Lamptey will be to confirm his new contract before anything happens. Uh I know that Ian Matson won't be going anywhere this month. Um, but Chelsea are constantly reassessing these situations all the time, which is why I think Charlton maybe felt a little bit blindsided by Gallagher being recalled when he was, because they were, uh, by all accounts, they were getting noises from Chelsea that everything was going well. They were really happy with Gallagher's development. And then all of a sudden, things change because other opportunities present themselves. And it's always a conversation between the club, the player, his representatives about where his development might be best served. So things can change very quickly, but as things stand, I think you know Gallagher will probably be the headline academy loan transfer, if you will, this month. Good stuff. Right, next on the agenda, we open the metaphorical mailbag. Okay, first up, obligatory transfer question. It comes from Danielle, who asks, after Saturday, do you think the club will be forced into making at least one signing before the transfer window shuts? And if so, your guess for which player could be making a late move to West London. I thought it was interesting, Liam, that Frank said in his pre-match presser, I'm worried about upsetting the balance of the squad. And then in his post-match interviews, I think we need some new players. Yeah, it was, he was very subtly applying pressure, wasn't he, after that Newcastle game. And, and while you can maybe write some of it off as sort of heat at the moment, frustration at what he's just seen, Lampard's been pretty consistent this month at saying that Chelsea need more goals, need more creation. We know they've been looking at Moussa Dembele, although that is not an easy deal to do. There aren't, there's pretty much no such thing as easy deals to do this month. Um, and it will be an early test, won't it, of Lampard's relationships with the Chelsea hierarchy. He came in with the with the, the pre-existing knowledge of Marina Granovskaya and Roman Abramovich, which most Chelsea head coaches don't benefit from. And that, that has helped him, I think, in the early months. But his job has also been simplified by not having the transfer market as a factor to worry about um, in some ways. So now this element of the game is in and 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 his comments after the Newcastle game suggest that Lampard might be prepared to play that game a little bit in public with, with the Chelsea hierarchy, which can be a little bit dangerous. But I think it, it's fair to say that Chelsea need more goals this month. So if he can apply pressure, he probably should. There's not been much going on generally, Simon, around the Premier League, it seems. Do you think there's going to be a big late rush? It doesn't feel like it. (laughs) Deals will be done, they they always are, but it it just feels like... It just feels like because there's a real dearth of quality, um, certainly available, that that it's only... Let's be honest, most most of Chelsea's January business over the years has tended to be squad 
players, certainly in recent years, when you sort of think back, cast your mind back to Giroud and Emerson, players like that. I, I just think that it's very difficult to get players that you genuinely want long-term. You might get a short-term fix, but sort of long-term. That, And I think that's the question that, that Chelsea are currently in. They're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place in that they know they need to strengthen, but the players they want to strengthen with aren't really available. So do they sort of think, oh, shall we just buy someone to sort of bail us out for the short term and then be stuck with a player we don't really want for the next few years? It's a really difficult situation. You can tell that Lampard, because he sort of seems to contradict himself, as, as you kind of inferred, sort of press conference to press conference. One minute he's sort of going, well, unless we can find some quality... Um, we'll, we'll stick with what we've got. And then after a disappointing result, naturally he's going to say, we need more. Um, I just I just think with Chelsea, you can never say never. I think the, the 2011 David Luiz, Fernando Torres will, will always stick in my mind because that sort of pretty much, not came out of nowhere, but in terms of £75 million spent, it was an extraordinary moment. Um, I can't see that level of spending, but Chelsea may sort of go in sort of later on in this month and just think right we're just going to have to get like a, a Dembele over the line because clearly lack of goals could cost them Champions League football Jack Pitbrook wrote, wrote a really good piece for us earlier this month about why it's basically not worth doing business yeah. in January and that does seem to be the the prevailing realisation across the Premier League is that it's hard enough to get value in the summer if you're a Premier League club looking to buy a player there's usually 15 to 20 million tacked onto the price, but in January that is exponentially multiplied. And even if you can get a player that might fit into your longer term plans, like Chelsea with Christian Pulisic or Kurt Zuma a few years ago, you often end up having to loan them back to the club for the end of the season anyway. So they effectively become a summer transfer. It's It's almost a redundant window at this point, I think restricted largely to firefighting clubs that are just a little bit desperate maybe with injuries or just in a really bad situation in the league which Chelsea aren't really don't really fit either of those at this point hmm. uh, on another topic interesting question here from Harry uh, he wants to know as Chelsea's deal with Yokohama as shirt sponsor is ending this season have there been any noises with regards to renewing that deal or finding a new sponsor um, well as I wrote in September um, I got wind of the fact that they were testing the market as um as it was put to me by a source they 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 were contact, um, contacting quite a number of um companies um although Chelsea were insisting at the time that that didn't mean that discussions with Yokohama were over um but I was very much led to believe by other people that basically the uh, deal with Yokohama isn't going to be renewed and that they were consciously looking for someone to replace them so understandably you know Chelsea will despite perhaps not being um, Premier League contenders title contenders Champions League contenders let's be honest I don't have much hope for them against Bayern Munich they are still a huge draw in the in the world market and they will comfortably I think get a similar kind of deal as they got with Yokohama for long term and it's it's necessary as the financial figures show you know, they do need to make sort of um, money from elsewhere. And um, yeah, I'm sure an announcement will be made before Yokohama's deal runs out. And Chelsea have tended to do pretty well at getting good value out of their sponsorships, even if that means aggressively ripping up agreements that they've had. You know, it's been, what, two shirt suppliers in a row that they've basically 
cut off years before the expiration date because they got a better offer. Um, and that happened again with, with Nike. And I, I'm sure they'll continue to do that and seek out as much value as they can in what is, I think, at the moment, quite a difficult sponsor market. It's interesting, Simon, you say that the club have been pursuing sponsors. I would have assumed it would have worked the other way around. Is that is that typically how it works in football? Well, I, I can only go by sort of what I was told of how things were going and that um, um, basically they were um, issuing correspondence, put it that way. Um, I was actually, not that I used it in my article, but I was actually shown a letter um, which was penned by the club to one of the companies in question. Um, and it was just like an open pitch of like, hello, you know, we, we, we're exploring this situation. We like you as a business. Um, would you be interested in, in having a discussion about it? And I just think that's standard procedure. I'm sure, I'm sure with Chelsea being the sort of international, fashionable club that they are, that, that companies might approach them as well. But it makes sense that Chelsea would be the quite proactive I mean after all they're the ones that that are chasing the money and quite rightly so because this is what business is all about and if they are going to be able to afford the the Jaden Sancho's of this world it's vital that they get a company on board that's going to give them lots of cash so they can pay uh, British Dortmund what they want. <laughs> uh, back to matters on the pitch Daniel wants to know how much impact does not having a left footer in the side make whenever we attacked on the left William or Asby come back onto their right a left footer allows a change in angles particularly for set pieces we spoke a lot about left back and how that is an area that, that needs attention but maybe a little bit further up the pitch on that side too. Yeah this has been a point that people have raised um, fairly consistently in the first half of the season that you maybe want a left footer cutting in off the right-hand side to give Chelsea a little bit of balance. Um, the, the the problem with that is it, it could potentially cause more problems than it's worth in terms of trying to balance Pulisic and Hudson-Odoi because che I think Chelsea see them both playing together at least quite a lot of the time in, in the coming years. And, and Hudson-Odoi has actually shown some pretty good flashes on the right-hand side, particularly when paired with Rhys James. Um, so they can dovetail really nicely and you've got the crossing threat and the ability to beat a man. Um, I think it's more about quality, really. That has to be first and foremost and and the runs that players are, are prepared to make because if they use the space intelligently, it doesn't necessarily matter whether they're cutting in on their left or they're darting down and de delivering a pinpoint cross with their right. You know, um, But it, it certainly, even on a sort of cosmetic level, it does look a little bit more balanced when you have that. I mean, you see it with Liverpool, with Salah on the right and Mane on the left. It, it it just flows very naturally, doesn't it? But I think you can get that kind of chemistry with time and, and above all with quality anyway. Mm. Uh, finally, Monty asks, why are Kovacic and Tomori playing so little? The Kovacic one's odd. Tomori, we know, has been carrying an injury. I think Kovacic, his form has dipped. Um, I can't remember which game it was where he came on a substitute. Um, quite Brighton, recently, Brighton, and and it was it was shocking. <laughs> it was like it was almost like Kovacic had been morphed, out on New Year's Eve. <laughs> well, no, morphed back into the player we saw last season. Um, yeah, I, I think basically that that's it. I mean, Lampard has made it pretty clear um, that he will pick players on on form and fitness, and Kovacic who I think was one of Chelsea's outstanding performers in the first three four months. Is 
whether it's the amount of games he played, he's he's just sort of gone off the boil of late. I think it's simply down to that. Um, Tamori, as you say, um, there's a, there's the fitness doubt. I also think Frank is still figuring out what his best pairing is. Um, it's interesting that he's now, after sort of leaving Christensen out for so long, he's suddenly gone, right, actually, I'm going back to Christensen. Um, something I applaud, and I understand why, because Christensen is the best ball-playing centre-back they've got. The problem is, is aerially, um, as we saw again at the weekend, that if you're going to pick Christensen, you need a really strong centre-half next to him to be towering in the air. And I have to say, Rudiger, since he's coming back from injury, I know he's very popular with the fan base, but it was interesting when I did a, a comparison of stats for a centre-back piece recently, which was on Christensen, um, that Rudiger's actually quite low down. He's sort of like trailing all the other centre-backs in terms of his return in, in you know, all those defensive statistical things that you you look at. Um, so, so yeah, I just I just think that's that's the main reason those two are out. Tamori, I think, is only a temporary thing. I mean, you could argue you could argue it'd be quite interesting to see him and um, him and Christensen together. But again, whether they're strong enough aerially, I'm not sure. I also think the Kovacic situation is, is partly a consequence of the fact that Lampard doesn't really feel like he can drop Kante <laughs> for any game that matters because he's so good. He's clearly Chelsea's best player, but I, I'm equally I'm not entirely sure, as Simon wrote this week, um, that Lampard knows the best way to use him or even in this system and style of play that Lampard is trying to implement, whether there is a best place to use Kante, whether he is a clean fit. Um, but Kovacic is, is not quite the player that Kante is. He's not achieved what Kante has. And um, and so I think that that's going to be a delicate balance for the rest of the season because Chelsea clearly have three starting quality possession-oriented central midfielders and, and often if you want to play Mason Mount or you want to play Ross Barkley and have any form of goal threat from midfield you can only play two of them. Okay, we're nearly done for today's show. Before we go, time to reveal our latest cult hero. It's a controversial choice. Uh, given that Arsenal are coming to West London this week, we've gone with a man who played for both. It's William Gallas. Uh, the Frenchman played 225 games for Chelsea, scoring 14 times, winning two Premier League titles and the League Cup. Uh, but Simon, given that he went to Arsenal and then to Spurs, is he a Chelsea hero? In my eyes, yes. In the vast, the impression I get, the vast um, majority of Chelsea fans know. And it, and it's not just because of the clubs he joined. Um, there was also the manner in which he left. And he was heavily briefed against, um, there was talk of him threatening to score an own goal, which I don't think is true. But um, it certainly left a sour note in many, many people's eyes. But going back to what my view of him I actually think he was part of the best centre-half pairing that Chelsea have had people will sort of say John Terry and Carvalho for me it was John Terry and William Gallas um, because they were the perfect duo you had the the positional sense of John Terry um, but he had the help of Gallas's pace on the other side and I remember even um, asking Mourinho about this when he started to drop Gallas um, in favour of Carvalho and saying the pairing, the two of them have only, I think, let in one goal. Obviously, not entirely their own work, but I think they'd they'd only conceded one goal together in like twenty five games or something ridiculous. Um, and Marino, obviously, because Carvalho was his man, 
we sort of went, yeah, yeah, but, you know, Carvalho's the man. I just think Gallus was brilliant. And, of course, he was bombed out to left back and that was a big reason why he had enough at Chelsea because he felt like he should have been starting in the middle of defence and not farmed out on the left back. I actually thought at the time that Arsenal had got the better end of that deal. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously that was the transfer right. yeah. where Ashley yeah. Cole went the other way. Yeah, six million plus Gallas. And as as great as Ashley Cole was, and I always thought he was great, that's a mark of how highly I, I thought I rated Gallas as well, a defender. And was that partly because he could play left back? Uh, Anywhere. Not, maybe not as well as central defence, but he was very, very competent in that position. He too. was a phenomenally complete defender during his pre- peak years, which I think was was the majority of his Chelsea career. He he could slot in next to Terry and was an excellent partner for him. Read situations well, really quick across the ground, which is maybe something you couldn't say for Terry or Carvalho quite so much. Um, and yeah, almost as Pilaqueta esque ability to adapt to left back, right back, wherever he was asked to play. Just a, a pure defender who was very difficult to beat one on one. I've got a great story about Gallas. <laughs> Um, a friend of mine, their father, um, used to manage the players area at Stamford Bridge and often would exercise discretion in terms of letting ex-pros from, from the good old days, you know, 60s and 70s into the players' family area, even when they weren't, strictly speaking, on the list. But this this was a different situation. It was in Mourinho's first spell, Ch- Chelsea-Barcelona, big Champions League game, and he was told under no circumstances it would you let anyone who's not on the list into the players' family area for this game. And William Gallas was injured at the time and turns up with his family... <laughs> hoping to get into this area and uh and this guy has to turn him away and and gallas is do you know who i am and he, he won't he can't let him in partly because he's got a couple of people stationed behind him making sure that he can't exercise any discretion these people by the way were collapsed into fits of laughter when <laughs> gallas disappeared in a massive huff around the corner and then um well entirely coincidentally a few years later this same guy who was actually an Arsenal fan the whole time he was managing the players area at Stamford Bridge he was an Arsenal fan um, managed to get tickets comp tickets for for an Arsenal game indirectly from William Gallas (laughs) (laughs) who absolutely would not have given him those tickets if he'd known who they were for so that's my Gallas story I think um, I think since since he's left and certainly since he's retired He's expressed regret that he left. I think he realised, well, clearly the grass wasn't greener because it's not like he picked up trophy after trophy at the two London clubs he joined. And he had that sort of disgraceful incident on the pitch at Birmingham. Birmingham, yeah, yeah. Another classic Arsenal meltdown in a in a title. Well, well he got close enough to confirm whether the grass was greener <laughs> yeah. by sitting on it. It wasn't very green, I don't think. I think it was get, getting very muddy by that stage for Arsenal. But, I mean, if you're, if you're Chelsea, I think... Um, I think, you know, if if you can forgive him for that move, those two moves, just look back to, uh, if you want fond memories, perhaps look back to that goal against Spurs uh, at Stamford Bridge, that late winner where he cuts in onto his right foot and smacks it in the, in the top corner and then runs to Mourinho on the touchline. Um, I think 
there's no doubt about it, his biggest impact in the Premier League was at Chelsea and he was a huge part of why they why they did so well in the first few years under Mourinho and was one of Chelsea's best buys pre-Abramovich. And he scored an outrageous winning goal against Tottenham. Absolutely outrageous, cutting in onto his right foot from left back, as we said, and smashing it into the top corner in the last minute. That's William Gallus, this week's Court Hero. We'll have another one same time next week. Well, that's just about it for today's show. Um, I was going to ask what you're writing about this week. It's a weird one with the midweek game, I suppose, isn't it? Because we don't know how that's going to go and that's going to affect what, what the big read is this week, I would suggest. Well, we have a very big read going up on David Luiz ahead of his return to Stamford Bridge for the first time as an Arsenal player. There's been five or six of us working on that, feeding things into it. And it's um, it's a long one, but a good one. So make sure you catch that. And um, later this week, uh, the the joint read may well be about Mason Mount and um, and and kind of his how he's dealing with the the strain of his first season and you know physical as well as mental strain of playing every week and 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 kind of being the symbol of this team that Lampard has built really. And Simon, you've got a piece up at the moment about how Angelo Kante is rubbish and needs to be sold immediately. Yeah, he's awful. <laughs> he's one of the worst players I've ever seen. No, I mean the whole point of that piece was to ask the question, and the thing is, it's. Obviously, I'm not f- remotely saying Kante's a bad player, but there, there's no doubt about it. I think his influence isn't, hasn't been um, as big this season, um, partly because of injury, of course. Um, he's not been a regular in the team. Um, but it's just noticeable that he just looks a bit lost in certain games. And I thought Newcastle was one, was one Everton was another. There's been quite a few times where I've come away gone, oh, I've not really noticed Kante today. And and that is remarkable in itself. But it's also a case of look, Chelsea have sold players in in very recent times, um, key players. Courtois they didn't have much choice about, admittedly, but he left Hazard of course last summer. And at twenty nine, which he turns in March, it's getting to that point of do you stick or or twist? And with Chelsea sort of needing to go big, I think this summer with a number of key positions needing strengthening. Do you sacrifice your best player who might want to leave himself, don't forget, because at 29 he may be thinking, well, do I join a club where I can genuinely compete for the Champions League, etc. So it's just throwing it out there. I totally understood the backlash it got, um, but I don't think it's quite as strong an argument to keep him as it might have been a year or two ago. Well, he doesn't really fit the timeline of the core that Chelsea are now building around, does he? And um, and as we discussed a little bit earlier, it also creates stylistic issues with him, Jorginho, Kovacic, all starting calibre players in the same squad. You can say, obviously, Kante is a better all-around player than Kovacic and Jorginho, but both are also younger than him. So, And he probably still has the most resale value of all of them, particularly if, you, particularly if Real Madrid do decide that they want to to add him to the balance of that team so there's certainly a a case for it and I think it's a a question that 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 Chelsea if they're doing due diligence about the long-term rebuild of this team will at least be asking themselves sure Uh, remember the Athletic will be dropping a transfer daily pod every Monday to Friday in January so keep an ear out for that thanks for your company listener do join us same time same place next week for now though it's goodbye